0: This episode of the Ortho Bullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to femoral acetabular impingement and total shoulder arthroplasty, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with total shoulder arthroplasty, and the first question reads, What is the average version of the humeral head with respect to the transepicondylar axis? And the choices are 1. 60 degrees retroversion, 2. 40 degrees retroversion, 3 20 degrees retroversion, 4 20 degrees antroversion, and 5 40 degrees antiversion. So although there is considerable variability in humeral head retroversion among individuals, multiple anatomic studies have found mean humeral head retroversion to be approximately 20 degrees, making 3 the correct answer to this question. One of the goals of primary anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty is recreation and reconstruction of proximal humeral anatomy. Modular prostheses have evolved to provide surgeons with better capability to recreate proximal humeral morphology based on humeral head inclination, retroversion, offset, height, and size. In terms of size, humeral head thickness has been found in cadaver studies to be 70% of its radius of curvature. This can be helpful to avoid overstuffing the joint or leaving it too loose. Beaulieu and Walsh took digitized measurements of 65 humeri in order to create a computer model for proximal humeral morphology. They found that retroversion varied from negative 6.7 to 47.5 degrees with a mean of 17.9. They advocate for prosthetic adaptability to recreate proximal humeral anatomy in a way that earlier generations of more geometrically constrained total shoulder arthroplasty implants could not. Robertson et al. made 3D computed tomographic models of 60 humeri that is 30 pairs to study proximal humeral morphology. They found mean retroversion to be 19 degrees with a range of 9 to 31 degrees. They found that proximal canal version was similar to head version, but the canal version in the middle and distal sections of the canal was variable. Moving on to the next question. A healthy 64-year-old man just underwent an uncomplicated shoulder arthroplasty for severe glenohumeral osteoarthritis. Intraoperatively, 60 degrees of external rotation was obtained. Postoperatively, he starts on a range of motion program. What limitations are recommended? And the choices are 1- No external rotation stretching for the first 6 weeks 2-No external rotation stretching for the first 3 weeks 3-Limit external rotation to the side to 60 degrees for the first 6 weeks 4-Limit external rotation to the side to 60 degrees for the first 3 weeks And 5-No restrictions on external rotation stretching So the patient needs restrictions on his external rotation to allow healing of the subscapularis tendon repair Limitation to 60 degrees is common if the tendon repair is robust and shows no evidence of tension on range of motion testing during the surgery. Restriction from external rotation stretching for even three weeks would compromise his ultimate functional recovery. Moving on to the next question, a 72-year-old woman with diabetes mellitus who underwent a total shoulder arthroplasty for degenerative arthritis five years ago, now reports the sudden onset of shoulder pain following recent hospitalization for pneumonia. Laboratory values show a white blood cell count of 11,400 and an erythrocyte sedimentation rate of 52 millimeters per hour. What is the most appropriate action? And the choices are 1. Begin a stretching program. 2. Obtain shoulder radiographs and aspirate the shoulder joint. 3. Obtain an MRI scan to evaluate for a rotator cuff tear. 4. Schedule for irrigation and debridement. And 5. Schedule for revision shoulder arthroplasty. So the patient has the preliminary diagnosis of an infected shoulder arthroplasty. Therefore, shoulder radiographs and joint aspiration for organism identification should be the first steps in the workup, making 2 the correct answer to this question. The patient is at risk for hematogenous spread given the recent history of pneumonia and her history of diabetes mellitus. Although she has stiffness, a stretching program is not indicated with the possibility of infection. Scheduling for revision arthroplasty or irrigation and debridement will depend on multiple factors including identification of the infecting organism, the organism's susceptibility to antibiotics, and implant stability. An MRI scan to evaluate for a rotator cuff tear is not indicated at this time. Moving on to the next question. What is the most common cause for poor outcomes in patients who undergo total shoulder arthroplasty? And the choices are 1. Loosening of the humeral component, 2. Loosening of the glenoid component, 3. Infection, 4. Brachial plexus injury, and 5. Rotator cuff tear. In an article in the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow, 431 total shoulder arthroplasties were performed with a cemented all-polyethylene glenoid component between 1990 and 2000. Follow-up averaged 4.2 years. In total, 53 surgical complications occurred in 53 patients, or 12% of the patients. Of these, 32 were major complications, that is 7.4%, with 17 of these requiring reoperation. Index complications in order of frequency included rotator cuff tearing, Postoperative glenohumeral instability, and periprosthetic humeral fracture. Notably, glenoid and humeral component loosening requiring reoperation occurred in only one shoulder. Data from the contemporary patient group suggest that there are fewer complications of shoulder arthroplasty and less need for reoperation. Especially striking is the near absence of component revision because of loosening or other mechanical factors. Complications involving the brachial plexus have been reported following total shoulder arthroplasty, but are not as common of a cause for failure. Moving on to the next question While performing a total shoulder arthroplasty, excessive retraction is placed on the strap muscles, that is, the short head of the biceps and coracobrachialis. Neurovascular examination would reveal weakness of which of the following. And the choices are one, shoulder abduction, two, shoulder external rotation. 3. Shoulder internal rotation, 4. Elbow extension, and 5. Forearm supination. So the musculocutaneous nerve can be as close as 3 centimeters to the coracoid process. Therefore, this relationship is important to keep in mind when performing surgery in this area. Excessive traction on the musculocutaneous nerve could lead to a neuropraxia with resultant weakness of elbow flexion and forearm supination because of the loss of biceps function. So the correct answer to this question is 5 forearm supination. Moving on to the next question, a 74-year-old patient is seen for follow-up six weeks after undergoing a total shoulder arthroplasty for glenohumeral arthritis. The patient missed a two-week follow-up appointment and is currently wearing a sling. The incision is well healed with no signs of breakdown. Examination reveals that passive range of motion is forward elevation of 90 degrees External rotation at the side of zero degrees and internal rotation up the back is to the level of the greater trochanter. A radiograph shows no sign of fracture or dislocation. What is the next most appropriate management for this patient? And the choices are 1. Physical therapy for range of motion exercises, 2. Aspiration for possible infection, 3. MRI to evaluate for possible rotator cuff tear, 4. Sling immobilization and reevaluation in 4 weeks, and 5. Duplex ultrasound for possible upper extremity deep venous thrombosis. So the patient has a post-operative stiff shoulder. The patient missed follow-up appointments and has not been participating in physical therapy for stretching. Based on normal radiographic findings, the shoulder is not dislocated, therefore physical therapy should begin immediately. Continued immobilization will further worsen the stiffness. There is no indication of an infection or rotator cuff tear. Deep venous thrombosis would present with abnormal swelling and pain. But the correct answer for this question is one, physical therapy for range of motion exercises. Moving on to the next question, a 72-year-old man who underwent an uncomplicated total shoulder arthroplasty four weeks ago now reports injuring his shoulder in a fall on the ice. He attempted to catch himself on a railing with his operative arm. He continues to feel pain anteriorly in the shoulder. His range of motion is 140 degrees forward elevation 90 degrees external rotation with the arm at the side, and internal rotation up the back to L1. Radiographs are normal. What is the most likely diagnosis? And the choices are one, deltoid contusion, two, rupture of the subscapularis repair, three, traumatic loosening of the glenoid, four, locked posterior shoulder dislocation, and five, biceps tendon rupture. So the patient in this question stem most likely sustained a rupture of the subscapularis tendon repair making 2 the correct answer to this question. This can occur in the postoperative period with forced internal rotation or excessive external rotation beyond the normal 40 to 60 degrees. On examination, the patient has 90 degrees of external rotation at the side, which is not a normal finding for a 72-year-old man. There is no indication at this time that the glenoid component has loosened or that the patient has a locked posterior dislocation. And actually, both of these would be evident on radiographs a biceps tendon rupture or a deltoid contusion would not explain the excessive external rotation to 90 degrees as seen on examination. Moving on to the next question, an active 66-year-old man who underwent total shoulder arthroplasty three years ago now reports pain. Laboratory studies reveal an elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate and C-reactive protein. Intraoperative frozen sections reveal greater than 10 white blood cells per high-powered field on two slides, and the gram stain reveals gram-positive cocci in clusters. What is the most appropriate surgical treatment to eradicate the infection and maintain function? And the choices are 1. Removal of the components and placement of an antibiotic spacer. 2. Removal of the components, placement of an antibiotic spacer, and bone grafting of the glenoid defect. 3. Resection arthroplasty. 4. Exchange of the humeral head and debridement. And five, arthroscopic debridement. So the prosthesis in this question stem is grossly infected. Removal of the components and placement of an antibiotic spacer is necessary to eradicate the infection and allow for a second stage reimplantation. Making one, removal of the components and placement of an antibiotic spacer the correct answer to this question. Resection arthroplasty is an option to treat the infection, but the functional outcomes would be limited. Bone grafting with a concurrent infection is not likely to heal and should be delayed until the second stage. Humeral head exchange and debridement or arthroscopic debridement alone is unlikely to eradicate the infection. Moving on to the next question, a total shoulder arthroplasty would be most appropriate treatment in which of the following arthritic patients? And the choices are one, a 75-year-old female with a long-standing history of brachial plexus palsy, 2. A 63-year-old male with a six-month history of shoulder pain and inability to abduct past 30 degrees. 3. A 67-year-old female with chronic shoulder pain and evidence of significant proximal migration of the humerus on x-ray. 4. A 70-year-old female with severe shoulder pain and radiographic evidence of glenoid erosion to the coracoid process. And five, a 72-year-old male who is nine months status post right TKA for osteoarthritis with debilitating shoulder pain and an MRI demonstrating an intact rotator cuff. So a total shoulder arthroplasty is indicated in the 72-year-old male with debilitating shoulder pain and an intact rotator cuff on MRI, making five the correct answer to this question. The other patient scenarios are examples of contraindications for total shoulder arthroplasty. So again, to review, a total shoulder arthroplasty involves replacement of the humeral head with a metal head and resurfacing of the glenoid to a cemented all-polyethylene surface. In order to achieve optimal results, patients must be selected carefully. Patients with an irreparable rotator cuff tear, non-functioning deltoid, inadequate glenoid bone stock, and brachial plexopathy are poor candidates for total shoulder arthroplasty. Edwards et al., conducted a multi-center randomized controlled trial to compare total shoulder arthroplasty versus hemiarthroplasty in patients with primary osteoarthritis of the shoulder. They found that total shoulder arthroplasty provided better scores for pain, mobility, and activity than hemiarthroplasty at two years' follow-up. Below et al. followed 45 consecutive patients who underwent reverse total shoulder arthroplasty for cuff tear arthropathy, post-traumatic arthritis, and failure of revision arthroplasty. After a mean follow-up of 40 months, they found that the reverse prosthesis improved function and was able to restore active elevation in patients with incongruent cuff-deficient shoulders. They also found that the results were less predictable and complication and revision rates were higher in patients undergoing revision surgery as compared to those patients undergoing reverse total shoulder arthroplasty for cuff tear arthropathy. Moving on to the next question, Which of the following factors has the greatest influence on early postoperative restrictions following total shoulder arthroplasty through a deltopectoral approach? And the choices are 1. Release of the superior border of the pectoralis, 2. Strength of the capsular repair, 3. Strength of the subscapularis repair, 4. Presence of glenoid retroversion, and 5. Quality of the patient's bone. So using the deltopectoral approach for total shoulder arthroplasty requires that the subscapularis is taken down. This can be performed trans-tendinously, taking the tendon off bone, or with a lesser tuberosity osteotomy. Regardless, excessive early passive external rotation and active internal rotation past the plane of the body are rarely permitted during the first 6 weeks. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Strength of the subscapularis repair has the greatest influence on early postoperative restrictions following total shoulder arthroplasty through a deltopectoral approach. The article by Norris et al. is a multi-center cohort study reporting results of shoulder arthroplasty. Total shoulder arthroplasty and hemiarthroplasty for treatments of primary osteoarthritis result in good or excellent pain relief, improvement in function, and patient satisfaction in 95% of cases. The most common intraoperative complications were intraoperative fractures. Moving on to the next question, which of the following preoperative factors is a contraindication to total shoulder arthroplasty? And the choices are 1. Passive external rotation less than 10 degrees. 2. Eccentric posterior glenoid erosion. 3. A 2 centimeter full thickness supraspinatus tendon tear. 4. Inflammatory arthritis. And 5. A preganglionic brachial plexus injury. So a preganglionic brachial plexus palsy, otherwise known as a root avulsion injury, presents with a flail arm and has a poor prognosis for recovery of motor function. Patients with brachial plexus palsies are not candidates for total shoulder arthroplasty due to the substantial motor and sensory deficits associated with these injuries. In contrast, patients with a preoperative loss of passive external rotation, posterior glenoid erosion, a repairable full thickness rotator cuff tear isolated to the supraspinatus tendon, and inflammatory arthritis are not contraindicated for total shoulder arthroplasty. But the correct answer to this question is 5 a preganglionic brachial plexus injury, is a contraindication to total shoulder arthroplasty. Ionetti et al. performed a level 1 prospective study in 118 patients who underwent either a total shoulder arthroplasty or a shoulder hemiarthroplasty for primary osteoarthritis. The presence of a repairable full thickness rotator cuff tear did not adversely affect outcomes in either group, but rather provided better active external rotation in the cohort receiving total shoulder arthroplasties the authors concluded that a repairable tear of the supraspinatus is not a contraindication to the use of a glenoid component. Norris et al. compared outcomes of total shoulder arthroplasty and hemiarthroplasty performed for primary osteoarthritis in 160 patients. There were no differences in postoperative pain, function, ASES scores, or range of motion between groups for patients with repairable rotator cuff tears the authors concluded that minor thinning and small tears of the rotator cuff can be adequately addressed at the time of surgery without adversely affecting outcomes. Moving on to the next question, in which of the following clinical circumstances would it be appropriate to eccentrically ream the anterior glenoid? And the choices are 1, a 72-year-old male undergoing a shoulder arthroplasty due to rotator cuff arthropathy, 2, a 65-year-old female with a glenoid retroversion of 13 degrees undergoing shoulder arthroplasty, 3. 70-year-old female with humeral antroversion of 13 degrees undergoing shoulder arthroplasty, 4. 65-year-old female with glenoid retroversion of 25 degrees undergoing shoulder arthroplasty, and 5. 59-year-old male with significant glenoid bone stock deficiency and severe osteoarthritis. So the surgeon should consider essential reaming the anterior glenoid when performing a total shoulder arthroplasty on a patient with a retroverted glenoid due to posterior deficiency associated with osteoarthritic changes, which is most consistent with answer choice number two, which is a 65-year-old female with a glenoid retroversion of 13 degrees undergoing shoulder arthroplasty. Normal version of the glenoid is between 0 to 3 degrees of retroversion, but when doing a total shoulder, the goal should be to place the glenoid component in neutral to slight antiversion. Reaming the anterior glenoid to neutral is a technique to be considered by the operative surgeon when presented with a patient undergoing total shoulder arthroplasty with a retroverted glenoid, as failure to perform this step increases the chance for glenoid loosening. If reaming down to the anterior glenoid will take away too much bone stock that is down to the coracoid process, one may consider bone grafting the posterior glenoid. To perform a total shoulder arthroplasty, patients will need a functioning rotator cuff and appropriate glenoid bone stock. Clavert et al. performed cadaveric analysis to simulate glenoid retroversion of greater than 15 degrees and found that retroversion to this degree cannot be safely corrected with eccentric anterior reaming when using a glenoid component with peripheral pegs due to penetration into the glenoid vault. Nowak et al. used 3D CT models of patients with advanced shoulder osteoarthritis with varying degrees of glenoid retroversion and simulated glenoid resurfacing. They found that smaller size glenoid components may allow for greater version correction when using inline pegged components as they would be less likely to result in peg penetration. Moving on to the next question, which of the following statements regarding P. acne's infections after shoulder arthroplasty is incorrect? And the choices are 1. It is usually associated with fevers. 2. Cultures need to be held for 14 days. Three, it colonizes the shoulder at increased rates compared to the knee and the hip. Four, men have a higher bacterial burden than females. And five, it is an important cause of clinical implant failure. So surgeons need to be aware that P. acnes is a skin bacteria that is responsible for shoulder infections that often have a subtle presentation. Many of the traditional signs of infection such as fever, erythema, and severe pain are often not present. Making one, it is usually associated with fevers, the correct answer to this question because that is a false statement. Donson et al. described a case series of 11 patients with P. acnes infections following shoulder arthroplasty, stating that it represents a diagnostic challenge. Traditional signs of infection were often not present. In fact, none of their patients presented with fevers. Initial three-day cultures were often negative, and the mean time to positive cultures was nine days. Patel et al. looked at colonization rates and bacterial burden and found it to be higher around the shoulder than the hip and the knee. The bacterial burden was higher in men than in women. Moving on to the next question. During a total shoulder arthroplasty, which of the following technical maneuvers would most likely place the rotator cuff tendons at risk of injury? And the choices are one, excessive retraction on the deltoid muscle during a deltopec approach. 2. Palpation of the rotator cuff insertion prior to the humeral head resection. 3. A humeral head cut with 30 degrees of retroversion. 4. Excessive bone removal with a humeral neck osteotomy. And 5. A humeral cut with 45 degrees of inclination. So the rotator cuff tendons can be inadvertently cut or detached during a total shoulder arthroplasty if the head cut is made either too distally or in excessive retroversion. Pearl et al. studied the placement of humeral component position during total shoulder arthroplasty by studying 21 cadaveric specimens. Their results supported that retroversion of the proximal humerus is highly variable, ranging from 10 degrees to 55 degrees and a mean of 29.8 degrees. They recommend anatomic reconstruction of the retroversion angle based on patient anatomy. They also stress palpation of the rotator cuff insertion prior to humeral head resection to avoid inadvertent cuff injury. But the correct answer to this question is four. Excessive bone removal with the humeral neck osteotomy is the technical maneuver that would most likely place the rotator cuff tendons at risk of injury. Moving on to the next question. The placement of a standard all polyethylene glenoid component for shoulder arthroplasty is contraindicated in which of the following scenarios? And the choices are one, irreparable rotator cuff tear, 2 previous glenoid resurfacing, 3 rheumatoid arthritis, 4 osteoarthritis, and 5 osteoporosis. So significant irreparable rotator cuff tears represent a contraindication to standard total shoulder arthroplasty. Options in a rotator cuff deficient patient include no glenoid resurfacing, that is in the case of a hemiarthroplasty, or placement of a reverse total shoulder, but not a standard all-poly or metal-backed polyglenoid component. If a patient has an irreparable rotator cuff tear, they will have abnormal mechanics and often develop degenerative changes referred to as rotator cuff arthropathy the abnormal mechanics will persist even after standard total shoulder arthroplasty components are placed with the head levering on the superior glenoid, otherwise known as the rocking horse phenomenon, which may loosen the glenoid component. In this situation, a hemiarthroplasty or a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty would be preferable. So the correct answer to this question is 1. In the context of an irreparable rotator cuff tear, placement of a standard all-polyethylene glenoid component for shoulder arthroplasty is contraindicated. Moving on to the next question, a 66-year-old man who underwent shoulder arthroplasty seven years ago reports progressively worsening shoulder pain for the past four weeks after hospital discharge for community-acquired pneumonia. He is afebrile and reports no chills or night sweats. Laboratory studies show a white blood cell count of 11,200 and an ESR of 25. Shoulder radiographs are negative for fracture, dislocation, or signs of implant loosening. What is the most appropriate management? And the choices are 1. Follow up in 2 weeks with a repeat white blood cell count and erythrocyte sedimentation rate. 2. Shoulder aspiration with gram stain and culture of fluid. 3. Prescription strength non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. 4. Physical therapy for shoulder stretching and modalities. And 5. Emergent surgical irrigation, debridement, and revision shoulder arthroplasty. So the patient may have hematologic spread of the pulmonary infection to the shoulder arthroplasty. However, further workup is necessary at this point. The elevated laboratory studies may still be secondary to the pulmonary infection. Aspiration of the shoulder joint with a stat gram stain and culture of the fluid is indicated, making two the correct answer to this question. If the aspirate shows signs of infection and irrigation and debridement is indicated, complete revision of the well seated implants may not be necessary. Physical therapy and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are not indicated until the possibility of a shoulder infection has been ruled out. A wait of two weeks to repeat the laboratory values in the presence of new shoulder pain is contraindicated. And moving on to the last question for this topic. Two years after undergoing a total shoulder arthroplasty, a patient reports increasing pain, stiffness, and swelling, and has an increased white blood cell count. Radiographs show lucencies around the glenoid and humeral components. You suspect infection. Which of the following is the most likely responsible organism? And the choices are 1. Staphylococcus aureus, 2. Staphylococcus epidermidis, 3. Propionibacterium acnes, 4. Escherichia coli, and 5. Pseudomonas aeruginosa. So the most likely organism to cause late infection in shoulder arthroplasty is propionobacterium acnes or P. acnes. This is a slow-growing organism that is present in over 50% of chronic infections. Staph epidermidis is the second most likely organism in this setting and presents in 15% of cases. The other three organisms are unlikely to present with this clinical picture. Moving on to the next topic of femoral acetabular impingement, the first question reads... A 29-year-old male who underwent right hip arthroscopy for femoral acetabular impingement two years ago presents for initial evaluation. He reports significant improvement in symptoms since the time of surgery, but has never had full relief and continues to have activity-related groin pain and discomfort with deep hip flexion activities. Review of arthroscopic photos from his index procedure confirm intact cartilage surfaces at that time. He has done extensive physical therapy without further improvement hip flexion, adduction, and internal rotation reproduce his pain. Which of the following radiologic findings are indicative of the most likely reason for his persistent symptoms? And the choices are 1, a tonus angle of 8 degrees, 2, alpha angle of 60 degrees, 3, lateral center edge angle of 25 degrees, 4, anterior center edge angle of 27 degrees, and 5, medial aspect of the femoral head is 7mm lateral to the ilioitia line. So this patient has symptoms consistent with persistent FAI despite surgical treatment. Alpha angles of greater than 42 degrees are suggestive of femoral head-neck offset deformity, which is a contributor to FAI. So the correct answer to this question is 2, alpha angle of 60 degrees. Various factors may contribute to development of persistence of pain after hip arthroscopy directed at FAI chondral issues, postoperative adhesions, labral lesions, and instability all merit consideration, but persistent structural deformity is the most common reason for failed FAI arthroscopy requiring revision. Philippon et al. retrospectively reviewed 37 revision hip arthroscopies performed by the senior author. All were indicated for persistent pain, and 36 of 37 had radiographic evidence of FAI at the time of revision. Bugunovic et al. analyzed 60 hips with a history of failed hip arthroscopy. Residual FAI was identified as the etiology for failure in 68%. Revision procedures included both open and arthroscopic hip preservation as well as total hip arthroplasty procedures. Moving on to the next question, a 32-year-old man has left hip pain that has become more severe over the past year. He also reports popping of the hip during the extension phase of gait. He has limited internal rotation and a positive impingement sign. An AP radiograph of the hip shows a normal head-neck configuration, but an AP radiograph of the pelvis is most likely to show which of the following. And the choices are 1. Normal appearing radiograph, 2. Increased femoral offset, 3. Acetabular crossover sign, 4. Sacral iliac sclerosis, and 5. A valgus hip. So acetabular retroversion is a cause of anterior femoral neck impingement. In this condition, a standard pelvic radiograph gives the appearance of a figure 8. That image is caused by a crossing over of the anterior rim margin on the posterior rim margin due to the retroversion. The fact that the femoral head and neck configuration appeared normal on the hip radiograph makes coxivalga an unlikely response. The other conditions are not associated with the presenting symptoms and clinical findings in this patient. So again, the correct answer to this question is 3 acetabular crossover sign moving on to the next question what is the most common physical finding in a patient with FAI and the choices are one increased external rotation two increased abduction three decreased external rotation four decreased flexion and internal rotation and five decreased adduction so a loss of flexion and internal rotation are hallmarks of FAI with the hip flex 90 degrees Maximal internal rotation testing is also known as the anterior impingement test causing deep groin pain and reproduction of symptoms. Occasionally a posterior impingement test will be positive with extension and external rotation. There are a variety of causes of FAI however the pathology limits motion as the femur, that is the cam, and acetabulum, the pincer, contact one another. Also, only one location needs to be present, such as cam type or pincer type versus both cam pincer lesions to cause symptoms. But the correct answer again to this question is 4. Decreased flexion and internal rotation is the most common physical finding in a patient with FAI. Moving on to the next question, which of the following best describes the pathologic anatomy of cam impingement of the hip? And the choices are 1. Retroversion of the acetabulum, 2. Posterior inferior labral tears, 3. Morphologic abnormality of the femoral head, 4. Femoral anteversion, and 5. Femoral head osteonecrosis. So cam impingement creates shearing forces that result in an outside-in directed detachment of the labrum in the anterosuperior quadrant. Retroversion of the acetabulum is associated with pincer impingement. The impingement is exhibited with hip flexion. Cam impingement involves a morphologic abnormality of the femoral head making 3 the correct answer to this question. Pincer lesions result from stresses of a normal femoral neck against an abnormal acetabular rim. Cam impingement is not associated with osteonecrosis. Moving on to the next question, in the absence of developmental dysplasia of the hip, what is the most common cause of osteoarthritis? And the choices are 1, leg calve perthes disease, 2, traumatic labral tear. 3. Repetitive high-impact activity, such as football. 4. Femoral acetabular impingement. And 5. Hip injury resulting from a direct impact, such as a knee hitting a dashboard. So if you have good situational awareness and know that we are reviewing questions about femoral acetabular impingement, you'll know that 4. Femoral acetabular impingement is the correct answer to this question. But to quickly review... Femoral acetabular impingement is a mechanism for the development of early osteoarthritis for most non-dysplastic hips. Early surgical intervention for treatment of FAI besides providing relief of symptoms may decelerate the progression of the degenerative process for this group of young patients. There are two general types of femoral acetabular impingement. In CAM impingement, the femoral deformity is usually a bump on the head and neck junction that impinges on the acetabular rim. The pincer type of impingement is caused by deformity on the acetabular side, such as a deep socket or acetabular overcoverage due to retroversion. Both mechanisms create an obstacle for flexion and internal rotation. Moving on to the next question, a patient reports pain in the hip with functional positioning. With the patient's supine, pain in which of the following positions would be typical for femoral acetabular impingement? And the choices are 1, the hip is internally rotated, passively flexed to 90 degrees and adducted. 2, hip is internally rotated, passively flexed to 90 degrees and abducted. 3, hip is externally rotated, maximally flexed to 90 degrees and adducted. 4, hip is externally rotated, passively flexed to 90 degrees and abducted. And 5, hip is externally rotated, maximally flexed and abducted. So, patients with dysplasia often have a hypertrophic labrum. Abnormal contact between the femoral neck and the acetabular rim leads to labral injury, especially in the anterior superior acetabular zone. Typically, young patients with the condition report pain with activity or long periods of sitting or driving. The hips often have limited motion, in particular in the internal rotation and flexion position. Forceful adduction with the maneuver causes pain. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Hip is internally rotated, passively flexed to 90 degrees, and adducted. Moving on to the next question. In the radiographic evaluation of FAI, which of the following views is obtained with a standing radiograph and an angle of 65 degrees between the pelvis and the film? And the choices are 1. AP pelvis, 2. Inlet, 3. Outlet, 4. Frog lateral, and 5. False profile. So the false profile view is performed with the patient standing with the affected hip on the cassette, the ipsilateral foot parallel to the cassette and the pelvis rotated 65 degrees from the plane of the cassette. It can be used to assess anterior coverage of the femoral head for patients with hip dysplasia and FAI. Chosa et al. developed the anterior acetabular head index on false profile radiographs to assess anterior acetabular coverage and found a correlation between the anterior acetabular head index and vertical center anterior angle when reviewing 250 patients. Sakai et al. used 3 d CT to evaluate the vertical center angle in 100 hips without osteoarthritic changes. They found that the anterior point of the vertical center anterior angle accurately defined the foremost aspect of the acetabulum in normal hips but questioned the accuracy of its use in hips with dysplasia. And moving on to the last question, what factor highly correlates with poor outcomes after surgery for femoral acetabular impingement? And the choices are one, age younger than 20, two, degenerative arthritis, three, prominence of the femoral head in CAM impingement, and four, the patient is a professional athlete. So a systematic review of case studies looking at the results of surgical treatment for femoral acetabular impingement showed good results for most patients, with the exception of those with preoperative radiographs showing osteoarthritis or outer bridge grade 3 or grade 4 cartilage damage noted intraoperatively. Both Bird and Jones and Philippon and associates have shown good surgical results for this condition among professional athletes. Likewise, Fabricant and associates demonstrated good surgical results among adolescent patients with an average age of 17.6 years. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Degenerative arthritis is the factor that highly correlates with poor outcomes after surgery for FAI. That's all for this question review session about femoral acetabular impingement and total shoulder arthroplasty. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.